Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. T.R. Eckler to talk about influenza. We are in the midst of one of the worst epidemics we've had for the seasonal flu in about 10 years, according to the CDC, and I certainly feel it in the emergency department. And so we thought it would be a good idea to highlight the evidence-based urgent care article on influenza written by Dr. Russell. If you are not already aware, this is the third journal that is published by EP Medicine, the first two being Emergency Medicine Practice and Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice. And this article in Evidence-Based Urgent Care is available for free. EB Medicine thought it would be a great idea to share all of the information that Dr. Russell has given us for free to all of those out there working in urgent cares and emergency departments. I found it to be exceptionally relevant, and I really hope you enjoy the discussion. The link to the free article is in the show notes. It's also available in the mobile app, along with all of the other articles published in all three journals. And this month, $50 Amazon gift card if you spend $300 or more at ebmedicine.net. And now, without any further ado, let's get to the discussion. Here we are back again talking with Dr. T.R. Eckler. Today, we are covering the evidence-based urgent care article that appeared in December. So this month, 2022, on influenza in urgent care, which seems exceptionally timely no matter where you're working, because if you haven't noticed, we're in the midst of an influenza epidemic here in the United States and equally in Europe. So this article, exceptionally well-written by Dr. Russell, really made me feel like an epidemiologist by the time I was done reading. It is just chock full of information about the history and epidemiology of influenza, which we're going to dive into today. And as a little preview, I happened to be looking at the CDC website yesterday, where it tracks the weekly numbers for influenza cases and compares them to previous years. And last year, we had a very mild influenza outbreak, actually. The seasonal flu only caused about 9 million illnesses and 4 million medical visits, which seems like a lot, but that's just here in the United States. That was last mm-hmm. year. So far this year, in October and November, so just two months, it actually ended November 26th, so not quite a full two months of data. The CDC projects there have been up to 19 million flu cases so far, and somewhere between four and nine million medical visits already in just two months. So we are almost double what we were the entire season last year. Last year, there were 10,000 hospitalizations and 5,000 deaths associated with the flu. And in the two months so far this year, the CDC estimates we've got somewhere between 78 and 170,000 hospitalizations and somewhere between four and a half and 13,000 deaths. Now, those ranges are pretty big because data is still coming in and it takes a while to accumulate all that information. It's not real time, but it is just striking that we have doubled everything we saw last year in only two months. So first and foremost, thank you for having me back again. And I'm excited about this because I forget how passionate I am about this issue because I really think that the flu is that silent killer that every year comes through and kills a ton of people. And it really is something that the vaccine has this bad reputation of not being effective. 
but I view it in the same way as the COVID vaccine now. And I'm trying to get more people to shift their understanding that way, that it's not important for basically having you receive it so that you, you don't get sick. It's important. So you receive it so you don't die and you don't transmit it to other people. Because right. if you can not get severely ill and need to be hospitalized or not transmit it because your period of illness is shorter and because your level of shedding is lower, that makes an enormous difference. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get into the vaccine here in a little bit. There's an excellent section on that actually in the article as well. But if you are listening and you're not aware, EV Medicine has three journals. So we've talked about emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice. But today we're in evidence-based urgent care which is written for those who are in the urgent care, but actually very relevant to the emergency department. Many of these conditions we see in the emergency department all the time. And this one, for sure. The introduction of the article mentions that influenza is responsible for about 3 million hospitalized days and 31 million outpatient visits every single year with a total economic burden for the U.S. of about $87 billion just in the U.S., it's just these numbers are staggering. It's kind of hard to wrap my brain around that. In the COVID era, I think it's just the comparison back and forth between COVID just becomes more and more relevant. But historically in the United States, about 20% of the population has been estimated to get infected with influenza every year. So one in five, you're just walking around town, 20% of the town is going to get infected this year. That's just average. Now, we happen to be in a particularly severe season, which means it's worse this year, but just on average, 20%. And the CDC tracks influenza-like illnesses based on symptoms. Because in the past, especially during these times of really high disease burden when there's a giant influenza epidemic, the CDC has said, well, if they have symptoms and they're at risk, just treat. You don't have to test. And they track test results and positivity, just like we did with COVID. Yep. But it's not required to test. You just treat them based on symptoms. Yep. COVID has kind of complicated all of that because what they call influenza-like illness happens to also encompass things like COVID-19. And so that's made data gathering and comparisons a little bit more difficult, I think, in the last three years. They also use... Not to, not to interrupt, but I'm, I'm fascinated by how I think that's going to shift this year. Because all of the testing companies have forced us to into this basically having one PCR test where all we get is RSV flu and COVID. So I feel like the data is going to get a little better because the times where we would just test for COVID or we would just test for RSV in kids, we're always getting all three of those data points. And I think that we're going to get more accurate, better flu data this year, which should bump the numbers and make it maybe even seem like it's bigger. But this is such a big outbreak. I think this is going to be a nice benchmark to compare years forward and to have a better idea of really where it is and what it is. Yeah, I agree. This year is particularly challenging. We have three viruses circulating in the general population at the same time. That's COVID, influenza, and respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV especially in the pediatric population, but there are now multiple tests that will test for the presence of all three at the same time. And if you happen to be at a place that has one of those products, then you will be surprised sometimes to diagnose RSV in an adult, how many cases of influenza you're seeing, or that there's still COVID circulating out there, even though we're as a country in a very low state right now. So it's constantly a surprise to me. It's like just spinning a wheel, like, what's it going to be today? Oh, it's today is an influenza A day, you know, tomorrow is an RSV day. It's very strange. But yes, there are 
many of those tests now available. In our shop, we use a PCR. We'll get into this in the testing section, a, a more rapid PCR product. But if you're in an urgent care center and you have a point of care test, it may be the same one, or it may be one of the rapid antigen tests. We'll talk about that in a second. Also interesting in the epidemiology part of the article, influenza deaths are worse at the extremes of age, so much like COVID, and have been on the rise for two decades, presumably because of our aging population, which I found interesting too. You know, we don't usually think about the United States and increasing death rates, but this is one of those categories where there is an increasing death rate, especially in the population over age 65, very similar to what we saw in COVID-19. And the annual mortality in the U.S., anywhere from 12 to 56,000 deaths, 140 to 710,000 hospitalizations, somewhere between 9 million to 35 million patients having to go to a healthcare treatment facility. Those numbers are huge ranges because there's a lot of fluctuation in the severity of the seasonal flu, and we just happen to be in one of the more severe ones right now. And we're definitely feeling it. I don't know where you are listening and practicing, but we are definitely feeling it here in the Southeast and have been since October. For the sake of definitions, the seasonal flu versus an epidemic or a pandemic. So the seasonal flu usually causes an epidemic or a large number of cases in a region every year, especially here in the United States. A pandemic is global and what the World Health Organization would declare, much like COVID-19. And the number of cases worldwide, not the novel strain, is what dictates when a pandemic occurs or has been declared. So just for example, we went through a COVID-19 pandemic, but it wasn't because COVID-19 was a novel virus. It was because there were so many cases worldwide. Can I interject briefly on this? Do it. Have you ever heard of the flu meeting? The flu meeting? No. So every year, apparently, the great epidemiologists and virologists and public health officials, they get together and they have this big meeting and they basically sample the duck population in China because that's where the flu comes from every year. And it's this big, very incredibly intelligent people looking at the best data they have every year. And then they go through and they try to lay out the plan for what they're going to do, how they're going to handle it, what they're going to try to do to decrease mortality and what they're going to do for the vaccine. And it's just this incredible resource meeting every year of basically everyone gearing up to try to fight this. And yeah. it's got to be one of those really challenging things because every year this virus finds a way to just become a real big problem. And it just, it, it's one of those fascinating things to read about where you're like, wow, imagine going to this every year and you're just like, all right, well, we're going we're gonna to try to figure out another way to, to get people to understand what we're going to do to make this not as bad. Yeah, it is a process for developing a flu vaccine and getting it ready to vaccinate millions and millions of people, even here just in the U.S., in time for the seasonal flu. And so, so yeah, it's a prediction process based on what strains are circulating in birds and other animals in the other side of the hemisphere, and then a development of a vaccine as rapidly as possible. And some seasons they get it matched really closely and it's very effective. Some seasons it's not matched very closely and it's less effective. It's never zero, which is mm -hmm. good. It's rarely really over 60, 70%. But even those numbers, they don't sound very high, but that's really quite effective on a population level. 100%. When you're looking at hospitalizations and 
severity of illness, it makes yeah. a big difference. And I mean, that's one of the bright spots of COVID that I'm still hopeful for is that we've invested so much into vaccine technology and our ability to replicate vaccine proteins and, and whatnot quickly. I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to then, instead of having to make choices about what the flu strain is this year, that we'll be able to make that later and later in the year and be closer and closer to knowing really what the flu virus that's going to come around that year is going to look like. So those vaccines will keep getting more effective and we'll be able to adjust even hopefully within the season to make it more effective so that we can really try to reduce the impact this disease has every year. Yeah, hopefully you and I will see that in our careers. That would be pretty amazing. The flu season here in the Northern Hemisphere is usually November through March. This year, we had an earlier kickoff surprise. And then interestingly, in tropical regions, it can be throughout the entire year, which I would think would be quite frustrating. It's spread predominantly in close person-to-person -person contact with respiratory secretions. So especially here in the winter season, everybody heads indoors and they're in enclosed spaces and they're not going outdoors as much. And that's usually when we tend to spread it the most, especially where there's poor ventilation. The classification of influenza I found interesting, really. It's an RNA-based virus, so we're used to seeing that here recently. It's in the Orthomyxoviridae family, which just rolls off the tongue so nicely. <laughs> it's an RNA virus that is classified into three subgroups, so A, B, and C, based on this nuclear protein antigen that is on the surface, and we primarily see A and B. C is mostly in animals, doesn't usually make it to humans. Thankfully, we've got enough circulating already. And there are these specific transmembrane surface proteins, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. This, the H and the N, which provide the subgroups. So we remember the bird flu or the avian flu, H1N1, which was a particularly severe strain of influenza. And so those H's and those N's are based on these surface proteins and provide a subgrouping. So this is all subgrouping of type A. So we get a massive type A outbreak. Everybody tests positive for A on our rapid tests. And somebody goes back and identifies the proteins on the surface and categorizes them into H1, H3, N1, N3, and then we get a more specific subtype. I found this interesting because they talked about how H3, N2 is always so dangerous, like that was the Hong Kong variant. But do you know, so the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919, do you know what the variation of that was? I do not. H1N1. Really? Which I found interesting. We, we talked about this before the podcast, but do you know where that started? Tell me. Kansas. Kansas. It was it's the, the Kansas flu. flu. It, it's Kansas flu. It, I, 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 this topic just really interested me. And I think that having gone through COVID and now going through this really bad influenza period, I think there's value in looking back a little bit to history, to people having gone through these waves and experienced these before. And there's a book called The Great Influenza by John Barry that talks about this flu in 1918, 1919. And it's really just a remarkable book that talks about all the complexities of how it was happening. And basically, it started in America, and it was really exacerbated by how we were putting all of our soldiers into military camps to get ready for World War I and just stacking people on top of people. And then all of the countries didn't really report it because they were all in the middle of a war. And Spain at the time was neutral, so they did report it. And that was really where all the big news reports came for where the flu was coming from. So it gets the name of the Spanish flu, 
but the epidemiology research suggests it probably came from the Midwest. Isn't that nuts? Thank you for sharing your concern for a global outbreak. We're going to name it for you. Hi. <laughs> it's, it's a fantastic read. And it was humbling to read, having gone now through COVID and through this influenza outbreak happening. Imagine what it would be like to try to face this without our respiratory tools and our medicines and the things that we can do to support people. It reminded me to be appreciative of the things that we do have to get people through these horrible illnesses where their lungs just collapse. Absolutely. Yes. I'm happy to be practicing medicine today than in the 1800s where- Pre-antibiotic era. Most of it was just observation. And I'm sorry. One of the other interesting things about influenza is oftentimes they get nicknames like swine flu, equine flu, avian flu. And really all that comes from an intermediate host like the birds or pigs or horses that served as a means of transmission to human beings and sometimes an environment for the actual virus itself to mutate. And then they categorize these into antigenic drift and shift. And drift is okay, small mutations. That means our vaccines and previous exposures are probably still effective. Antigenic shift is a bigger change, a larger mutation. And that's when the virus is more effective in infecting other people and killing people because our immune systems have a more difficult time recognizing it and have to start all over. So all of this is interesting. And in the classification of the disease, the transmission stuff is a little bit different than COVID. So we talk a lot about COVID and every patient we see with respiratory illness, we think about COVID. But it's a good reminder that influenza is also a respiratory virus and the incubation period is much, much shorter. So 18 to 72 hours within less than a day, up to three days after exposure, the virus starts to show symptoms as opposed to COVID, which we were used to having that one week of isolation. And the peak replication is right around day three and then shedding virus is gone by about day seven. So that part is pretty similar, I think, to COVID in most cases. If the person's immunocompromised, they can still shed virus longer than seven days, maybe up to two weeks, and that's also similar to COVID. So there are some overlapping points there in the pathophysiology section with COVID-19. I did find it interesting that children can shed out to two weeks because yeah. I felt like it it reassured me that it is really frustrating to be a parent in these times because it does seem like every kid is sick every other week, and it's just because they're learning how to deal with all these new viruses. And as their immune systems get stronger, they just keep helping each other's immune systems get strong. Yeah. And they're in school and they're sharing things and they're drinking out of each other's water bottles. I mean, it's just a perfect culture for the virus. <laughs> there are secondary infections that you can get from the flu, primarily pneumonia, and that's staph, strep pneumonia, and haemophilus influenza. Those are the big three that we see in healthcare. Interestingly, MRSA is on the rise, especially in colonized patients. So MRSA pneumonia can occur after an influenza infection and death is within four days, which I thought was just terrible, really. Like in our day and age, that's, that's, you don't really see very many diseases like that. The H3N2 mutation, as you mentioned, the H3 is the most virulent and causes the most disease and tends to avoid vaccine defenses the most. And the goal effectiveness for vaccines is 50%, which doesn't seem like a very high bar, but honestly, 50% is very, very effective as far as influenza vaccine goes and still makes a big difference. There's a good figure there on page nine of the article 
figure three, where it talks about the effectiveness of the vaccines and seasonal flu. And all the way back to 2009, you can see most years they're doing a good job hitting that 50% target. More recently, 2018, 2019, the target wasn't met. And last year, the target wasn't met. But thankfully, last year, it was a very mild seasonal flu outbreak. But the last couple of years, you got to wonder how much that was affected by everyone being in masks oh, and yes. being so much more social distancing. Most certainly. Yeah, I'm sure it had to do with the masking for sure. There are three approved vaccinations in the United States. I should say three methods of vaccination development that have been approved in the United States. There's the egg-based, the cell-based, and the recombinant influenza vaccine. The egg-based is in two varieties, an injectable and a nasal spray. And the injectable is inactivated and the nasal spray is live attenuated. And interestingly, if you have an egg allergy, it's not considered a reason to not get vaccinated with the vaccine, which I thought was very interesting. Yes. If you have a history of Guillain-Barre disease as a result of a prior vaccination, then they just encourage you to talk to your specialist. Otherwise, everyone is encouraged to get vaccinated from age six months to adulthood. And they consider that to be with, as they put it in quotes, rare exception <laughs> from the CDC. And especially the population above 65 years of age, they're the ones who are at the highest risk because of waning immune system function or immunosenescence. I'm not even sure that's a real word. <laughs> I saw that. Yes. That was immunosenescence. I like that word. But that's called the waning immune system function that occurs normally with aging. That's that's like the origin of that word is like senility, like it's like your immune memory, essentially, right? It's like dementia of the immune system. Yes. Yeah, that's probably right. The the, the Latin origin, immunosenescence. And the, the live attenuated vaccine is not recommended for people who have immune compromise. So if you've got bone marrow transplant, solid organ transplant, that kind of thing, they just recommend the completely inactivated version. Typically, you're supposed to get vaccinated before the end of October in preparation for the outbreak. And this year, of course, we had the outbreak already in October, so people were getting a rude awakening. But it's okay to get vaccinated with the influenza vaccine and the COVID vaccine at the same time, just at separate sites. This is how I got my children to get their flu shots this year. I told them that if they would get one shot, daddy would get two shots. So I took my twins to the doctor. They got their one flu shot, and they didn't think I would do it. So I took them with me and I got a COVID shot in one arm and a flu shot in the other. And now they think I'm a serious tough guy. <laughs> That's awesome. Whatever it takes, right? I mean, the first time know. my daughter didn't cry for a vaccine because she was so impressed that I was going to go get two shots. Wow. She just kind of looked to be like, are you really this crazy? And I was like, uh, yes, yes, I am. Daughter. Yes, I am. That's right. Here's your lollipop. Well done. <laughs> so symptoms of influenza, again, lots of overlap with RSV and COVID, fever, cough, sore throat, nasal congestion, headache, myalgias, and in children's especially vomiting and diarrhea. And so if you see GI symptoms with a fever, especially in a child, yes, absolutely. Still think influenza. I think the meat of the article. So this is interesting backstory with the epidemiology and the annual outbreaks and when they occur and the disease typing. But honestly, I thought the most helpful part of this article was the discussion around testing and treatment. Dr. Russell recommends what the CDC recommends, really, which is laboratory testing only 
if it affects management, especially if they're in the middle of an epidemic with a high prevalence of the disease. Now, that typically means if you're thinking about ordering less tests, or if you're thinking about providing antibiotics or antivirals, that you go ahead and then get a formal test for the flu. Interestingly, this is highly influenced by COVID and RSV currently, because as we think about providing antiviral treatment for an upper respiratory infection, trying to figure out which one they have to accurately give them the correct medication becomes far more important than it has in any other season. Historically, they've just said, hey, if they have flu-like symptoms and they're at risk or there's a lot of flu burden in the community, just treat them. Give them the oseltamivir or whatever your antiviral choice is. But now it's way more complicated than that because if you happen to have COVID, that's a different antiviral. If you happen to have RSV, there's no antiviral. Right. And all three are in the community right now. That's, it's just a very, very difficult scenario. And so the treating based on clinical suspicion that we used to recommend from the CDC is really a lot more challenging right now. And I think having read this article, my understanding of the people at risk for flu that I would want to test and treat got a little more focused and a little more clear that if you're a pregnant person, if you're someone that's got sickle cell disease, if you're someone with serious lung problems, or if you're a very young kid or a very older person, it really is. If I'm within that 48-hour window, I may want to consider giving you antivirals or at least have that conversation with the patient so they also know some of the side effects of it. But, but like you said, I think now, given the rapid tests that we have where you can tell, is it COVID, is it flu, is it RSV, it makes a big difference. It does. There's a great table on page 13 that lists all of the people who would be considered high risk. And it mirrors really the same people we think about with COVID. So the extremes of age, less than two years, older than 65 years of age, any kind of lung disease. And then people I don't normally think about, like people with diabetes people who have brain or spinal cord injuries, people with strokes or seizure disorder or cerebral palsy, people with HIV. These are the chronic diseases that also come with increased risks for other complications of the disease. And so it's an excellent list to keep in the back of your head, but it very much mirrors the same people who are at increased risk for COVID. So if really, if you're testing someone with COVID and you have access to rapid flu right now, you're getting both to try and figure out which one it is that they have. Speaking of testing, there are numerous categories of tests. So there are the immunoassays, the rapid antigen tests, the PCR tests, and then viral cultures. I have never, ever sent a viral culture. I don't even know how to order it in our order catalog. It's not something that's going to come back very quickly. And in general, that's more, I think, of an academic pursuit than anything else. It's something for shingles. Like I've unroofed some blisters and done that. But I don't, I, I, otherwise, I would agree with you. And then occasionally for like our pediatric patients, you're testing them with a broader viral panel that we have. Yes. And I think that yeah. There's an interesting future coming in a few years where we have more access to these rapid panels where we can see more viruses and it'll give us an even clearer way of targeting what this is and what it isn't. Yeah. Even the herpetic testing has gone PCR nowadays. And so the quality of PCR testing, as Dr. Russell actually discussed in the article, has really improved and so has the turnaround time. So with the PCR testing that's now available, you can get a result in as little as 30 minutes. And the PCR is extremely reliable, much more sensitive, much more specific. 
and equates, if not exceeds, the quality of a viral culture. And so the change in healthcare in general to PCR testing has really been a, a tremendous shift because now we can get answers to things we could never get answers to in the ED quite quickly. I remember a year or two ago when we were debating, like, what is the sensitivity and specificity of our COVID test versus our flu test? How reliable are either of these tests? How sure are we when we have someone that we're worried about that we want to actually do something to either admit them or start them on steroids, even if it's positive, even if it's negative? And this is just gives us a lot of reassurance that we're dealing with much better data than we were even just a year or two ago. Absolutely. And so if you're working in a scenario where you have access to the PCR testing, that's, I think, ideal. Still not, it's rapid in the sense that it's faster than traditional PCR testing, which in some areas could take hours to a day just to process the test. It's rapid in comparison to that, but it's still not as rapid as our rapid antigen testing, which I think is still the most commonly available test out there. So your at-home COVID test, your typical urgent care influenza test is an antigen test or a rapid antigen test. And that's like 10 to 15 minutes and you get a result. And if it's positive, sometimes even more quickly than that, the rapid antigen testing is certainly available much more widely, but the PCR testing is definitely more reliable. And the combined PCR testing, I think that's a fantastic way to do it. That happens to be what we have at our shop. And if you can get one swab that is detecting all three viruses circulating at the same time, that's a much more helpful test in general. If you can turn it around in less than 30 minutes, that's ideal. There was a really good discussion about prevalence of the disease and whether you're in a high prevalence or a low prevalence state. So it seems almost backwards. But as Dr. Russell discussed, when there's a high prevalence of the disease and someone has a high clinical suspicion, the benefit of testing there is quite low. When there's a low prevalence of the disease, then you have to start questioning, okay, am I going to test this person if there's a low prevalence? because there's a higher chance I'm going to get a, a false positive test if there's not as much of that disease circulating around. And when there is a lot of that disease circulating around and I test the patient, there's a higher chance I'm going to get a false negative. And it's a very, very interesting discussion about when is the appropriate time to test. Again, if you're in the middle of the summertime, a rapid test, like a rapid antigen test, which has some of the lowest sensitivity and specificity, is more likely to give you a false positive test, up to 50%, he said, actually, in one study, and when the disease prevalence drops below like 5%. But in times of peak activity, like now, epidemic or pandemic-type times, a rapid test has a higher positive predictive value, a lower negative predictive value, and is much more likely to give you a false negative result. And we've seen that in the ED where we get tests and we go, oh, kind of scratching our head, like all three came back negative, but I don't know what other virus you have. We seem to be seeing only these three. And some of that is just based on technique. Who did the swab? Did they get an accurate sample? Has it been enough time for them to start shedding the virus? Did they just develop fever like 20 minutes ago? And so it's an interesting discussion, but I think it is also hampered by the fact that there are two other circulating viruses. And so in a traditional seasonal flu type scenario, I would say, yeah, if it's high prevalence, just go ahead and treat somebody who's high risk. Right now, I seem to be asking myself, okay, do you have COVID or do you have influenza? Because it makes a difference for what I'm going to prescribe. And so although it's, it's a very pertinent discussion about when to test somebody, I think right now that you're still having to do something. You're still going to have to get some kind of rapid test, whether that's just to say, okay, we did a rapid COVID and it came back negative and so I'm going to treat you for influenza. 
Agreed. I think I, I find it fascinating when, you know, families will bring you like their whole family at once and they're all sick and you get to swab them all now with this rapid test. And I find that the results are better, but even still, you'll have a whole family that's sick and one of them will pop positive for flu. And you're like, okay, well, this is probably what we're dealing with. I haven't had one where it's one has flu and one has COVID and then the rest of them here. But, uh, but yeah. I, I find most of the time, one of them will give you the truth when the whole family gives you the opportunity to test them. It's so interesting. It just goes to show you how good the test is when you're doing it on six people who all got sick at the same time, or perhaps they're in, in various uh, stages of their illness and you're going, okay, like your day one through three, you're probably going to yield the highest yield on this test. And then all of a sudden the person who's already recovered tests positive and you go, oh, hmm, okay, that surprised me. <laughs> it's just more opportunity to get the swab right as you're swabbing these people. I think if they're adults, you're much more likely to get an adequate sample. Honestly, the children... It's a difficult thing. Interestingly, in the high-risk list on page 13 there, Indians and Alaska natives, which I hadn't realized, but apparently are at higher risk for complications from influenza, make the list. So regardless of health history, they're on there for high risk of influenza complications and are recommended for antiviral therapy. And then people with morbid obesity, which we see a lot, we're talking about BMI greater than 40, Regardless of any medical history, if you have morbid obesity, that alone is a, a factor. And of course, now we know in the retrospectoscope of COVID, but residents of nursing homes and chronic care facilities, if they have any symptoms at all, they're considered high risk as well. When it comes to antiviral medications, there are some options, which honestly, I think I learned something from this section. Same. There are some newer products that are available. Oseltamivir is the one we're all familiar with. It's been around for a few years. Adamantane derivatives have been around even longer. That's a, a much older antiviral, which historically has been quite ineffective for influenza A. But recently, some of the newer circulating strains are actually sensitive to it. So there is some evidence that that also helps. There is a, a new injectable one-time dose, paramivir which is supposed to be given in that same time frame. It's all about the, the critical 48 hours of onset of symptoms. And then there's even a single-dose oral medication, baloxavir marboxyl, which is also given as a single-dose just oral therapy. All of them are recommended for people who are high risk. Several of them are indicated for people who are pregnant and lactating. And those are also people who are at high risk, especially pregnant patients. And so many of these have been improved in pregnant patients. And that's just one more population of people we need to have a discussion with. Interestingly, that was uh, actually one of the risk management pearls in the article was the patient is pregnant, but looked very well. So I didn't think they needed a prescription for anything. And they recommended specifically in that scenario, make sure you tell the person that they're at higher risk for complications and at least offer them the medication because they are FDA approved and safe in pregnancy which is honestly not something I typically do in my day-to-day -day practice. And I find that the, the vaccine hesitancy in pregnant patients is higher these days. Mm -hmm. And so I think this article pushed me a little more to really get that sense of, okay, are you vaccinated? Okay, if you're already positive for flu, it's too late for that vaccine discussion, but I would want to consider that antiviral discussion. But, you know, the side effects, including some of the nausea and the vomiting that happen, would be something that I'd want to have that risk-benefit discussion. Yeah, and that actually brings up another great point about the article. In the Oseltamivir paragraph, Dr. Russell really gets into the number needed to treat and the number needed to harm 
based on side effects and the most common side effects being things like nausea and vomiting from oseltamivir. The number needed to harm is 21. The number needed to treat is 26. And so the number needed to harm is actually lower, which means more people will develop side effects than those who actually get the benefit from the medication. But we're not talking about just decreasing influenza symptoms by whatever, 12 hours or a day. We're talking about preventing the serious complications, the hospitalizations and the mortality. And so it's still felt to be beneficial, even though the number needed to harm is slightly lower than the number needed to treat, which I thought was a fascinating discussion as well for that particular medication, since it's the one we prescribe the most. A question on that, just as a clarifying question on that, that number needed to treat, number needed to harm is in a general yeah. population, if I'm not mistaken. I think that my understanding of those numbers made it so that I was more likely to tell almost everybody that they don't do that. But I think that that risk picture changes in the high risk people. So I think that this kind of reinforces my practice for people that are in general healthy people. Your likelihood of benefit versus harm is the same. So I'd probably say just wait and see. But if you're high risk, that calculus changes. Yeah, I agree. I think it's worse if you're high risk. It doesn't say specific age groups. So found fewer lower respiratory tract complications requiring antibiotics after 48 hours, and that's the number needed to treat of 26, and also fewer admissions to the hospital for any cause. That was a number needed to treat of 91. And then when it came to the safety of the drug, there was an increased risk of nausea, and that was the number needed to harm of 27 and vomiting number needed a harm of 21. So nausea and vomiting being the most common side effects have very low numbers needed to harm, which are actually lower than the number needed to treat to prevent respiratory complications requiring antibiotics like pneumonia and hospitalizations. So your number needed to treat to prevent a hospitalization was 91, and that was in the general population. So we're not talking about just isolating the high-risk people. But yes, I would certainly say that if they were high risk, that number is probably lower mm-hmm. and it would be interesting to see that data. But certainly it does change the the calculus of the conversation, as you put it, for sure. Yeah. And I, I also find that with children having done this in rural places and being able to watch them over time and seeing them come back to follow up at times, I've seen a lot of kids develop nightmares and hallucinations and night terrors on oseltamivir. So I always caution parents that could be one of the side effects if they really are aggressively wanting to pursue that as a treatment. But it generally gives me some pause to give it in children unless they have some other risk picture that makes me push over the top and and want to go that direction. Yeah. For me, this has always been a conversation of, does it really help your symptoms? Is it going to really make any difference? And there was a lot of focus early on about the fact that people recover faster, but we're talking hours, not really days. And so it just seemed like a completely unnecessary medication. But I think Dr. Russell does a good job in the article of highlighting the severe complications, which is something now we're more accustomed to talking about when it comes to COVID. These medications are primarily meant to prevent the serious complications and not everybody's going to have them. And so when we're talking about a medicine that's going to give you side effects as well, it does become a nuanced conversation, especially with a parent going, hey, this could give them nausea and vomiting or night terrors. And the benefit is your child is less than two years old and in this high risk group for developing complications like pneumonia or being hospitalized. And so here it is, if you want it, you get to decide. It's, it's 
I think honestly, it's a difficult conversation for a typical parent who doesn't have any kind of science background to to really understand. And I think there's also value for urgent care providers and emergency providers just to get a sense of your local pediatrics offices, because especially when I was doing rural critical access medicine, there's only one or two pediatricians in those areas. And it helps really to talk to them and be like, hey, what is your practice? How are you doing it? So you can be on the same page because we had one pediatrician that really, really believed in this and gave it to almost all of his patients. And it was a, it was really two different stories they would get if they came to see me in the ER. I was more hesitant and conservative about giving it to everybody. And then if they saw their pediatrician, they all got it. So I think that having a sense of where you're at and where your community is at really can make a difference. And it also helps to make sure that patients are getting the right follow-up and, and knowing where to land. You know, that's a really good point. And I've never actually heard anyone articulate that before. It's helpful, especially actually if you're in the same hospital system. So, you know, if you're working in an urgent care that is owned by a hospital system or you have a good relationship with your ED providers, or if you're working in the ED and you know the people working in the urgent care and you can come to some kind of consensus on how you're going to treat a specific population of patients, you could actually help resolve a lot of the confusion. You're all on the same page. You're all giving the patients the same instructions. And you can avoid that kind of healthcare shopping scenario as well, where people are looking for something and they go to the urgent care and don't get it and then end up in the ED or vice versa saying, hey, I went there yesterday and they told me I had the flu and they didn't offer this to me and I really want it kind of scenario. So I think that's actually a fantastic idea. Probably easier to do if you're in the same health system. But nowadays with local medical societies and providers having more access to records across healthcare organizations and being able to text each other and send each other secure messages, you could probably come to a guideline pretty quickly about whether or not you're going to prescribe it for people at high risk under two years old, greater than 65. You know, these, these guidelines are pretty easy to follow. They're really not that hard. I would think sharing this paper is a really nice start point for that conversation where you say, hey, we're thinking of going based off of this for what we're going to treat and not treat. Is that what's going to be the standard of care at the next level of care with the pediatrics yeah. office or the, uh, the emergency room or the primary? And really, the CDC also tracks resistance patterns. There's a good discussion of that in the treatment section of the article as well, that every year, depending on the strain and the subtyping, there can be resistance to specific medications. And the CDC will just tell you, hey, this is more effective than that. And that's going to be the medication you're going to run out of in the pharmacy. But even if you can come to some kind of local agreement that this is primarily what you're going to prescribe, your pharmacies would benefit from knowing that information because then they know, okay, this season we're stocking baloxavir and less of oseltamivir, or we need more uh, amantadine. <laughs> adamantidine. Isn't that what's in... Uh, uh, <laughs> Adamantium is what adamantium. is Adamantium, that's right. We need more adamantium. We do need more adamantium. That would, that would definitely fix some of the osteoporosis <laughs> problems in America. Okay, if you're not Wolverine, you, you don't need more adamantium. You need adamantium. I'm not even going to say it right. Adamantidine. Amantidine. <laughs> that's right. That's the medication, right? I, I was trying to think of the... It's amantidine and rimantidine, which are in the adamantane derivative category. <laughs> oh, gosh. I love it. Yes, if we were all Wolverine, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. The last thing I want to touch on is something unique to this journal. So evidence-based urgent care actually has a charting and coding section in the back of the article. It's a page and a half of excellent information on what to code based on how ill the person is, depending on how much information, how sick the patient was, and what kind of testing you did. So 
interestingly, we have now these products we mentioned before that will test for three viruses, COVID, flu, and RSV, and three tests will push a visit up to a level four visit just based on the testing, which I found fascinating. So if you are coding your own charts and screening people who have multiple risk factors, or especially if they have more than one chronic illness, especially that geriatric patient, you'll be surprised how quickly you'll get to a, a level four visit in the urgent care. I strongly recommend you take a look at the section at the end of the article. There is actually one of these sections in every single one of the urgent care articles, and you could become a coding expert pretty doggone quickly. Brad Lehman does a really great job in each one of these articles of adding that additional coding and charting tips section. And so for this particular one, I learned something new and I definitely recommend you check that out. So thanks again to Dr. Russell and Brad Lehman. I thought it was an outstanding article. The amount that I learned about influenza was significant. And honestly, I think it's going to change my practice. Most of the times I kind of poo-poo the antivirals, but now if you have influenza and you're in that high-risk group, then yeah, you know, I start to look at it more like I look at COVID in high-risk patients. And so I definitely think this is an impactful article that's going to change my personal practice. Agreed. TR, thanks again. I really appreciate the time and your insights. Until next time, everybody, be safe. Wow, I certainly hope you took away as much as I did from this discussion. It really is going to impact my practice. And I also hope that wherever you are, you are safe and excited about the holiday season. If you enjoyed listening to the discussion, I would really appreciate it if you would rate us in whatever podcast store you are listening. And also don't forget about the free $50 Amazon gift card if you spend more than $300 at ebmedicine.net. So much CME, so much information, all available to you online and in the mobile app. And I hope you have a safe and happy holiday season. Until next time, be safe, everyone.